Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. There was one who kept calling me boy, boy. One day he came right up to me. He said, boy, I turned around. I said, my name is David McAndrew Clark. If you can't tolerate using one of them, try sir. David McAndrew Clark is in his late 70s. But what he's describing happened to him while working as a porter on Canadian Pacific Railway in the mid-1960s. I didn't go through any of the humiliation that my father and his and the generations before him went through. By then, it was, it was a very well-paying job at that time, especially for a summer job. Everything turned into a bed at night. You had to pull that all down, make that all, make up all those beds, make sure the wash basin was clean, etc. Then you had the shoes to shine at night. Yeah, as long as you were awake, as long as, as, long as you were awake, you were there to, um, to serve the public. Porter isn't really a job anymore on trains in Canada. But when traveling by train was the height of luxury, porters took care of a passenger's every need on sleeping car trains. They were almost exclusively black men serving white passengers. And in the early days, porters like Mr. Clark's father worked incredibly long hours with little sleep and very low pay. There was zero job security. But it was nothing not even a bit similar to what my father and older men than he had to tolerate. In order to get a less than decent income, I I gained admiration for black men who did that for a living. My father never spoke about his job. Never disgusted. He never spoke about the denials. He didn't even bring his uniform home. He was embarrassed because this is an educated, skilled man who is forced because of racism to accept such a job. But the fact that you're a grown man and somebody's calling you boy, and if you accept it, well, it's okay. But if you spoke up, sometimes it could lose you a trip. You know, that's what I was told by the old reporters. And most of them wouldn't take it. They weren't accustomed to the blatant, overt racism that they experienced when they came to North America. Because they thought when they came here, the doors would open. But they came here and there was a, a rude awakening. They received racism not only from the general public, but from the white co-workers. Like the, there were waiters who did not like the idea that they they would eat in the dining room. They were allowed to do that after everybody else had been served. It was difficult to get because I remember when my father used to travel, my mother used to cook chicken and and beef and rice and this, and she'd make bread and coconut bread and she she pack. Uh, those preserved jars with hot chocolate and wrap everything in brown wax paper and newspaper, and then they wrap it in cheesecloth. And I remember one time I asked my mother, who goes food for your father needs food when he goes out to work? But little did I know until I started working on the train, it was because many times they couldn't get, they weren't able to use the facilities to eat food. 
or to cook food. They had a habit sometimes of buying sterno. Back years ago, they had a thing called sterno. It was a liquid in a can, and there was a little metal thing you bought. It looked like a stove. And that's how some of them would heat their food. And then I noticed a little stool that was suspended from the wall. It, it folded up, but it suspended. And I asked an older porter what it was. He said, well, young Clark, back in the day, that's where we had to sit. If you were in the smoker and a white person entered, you had to leave and sit there. You couldn't stay in the smoker. And he said, many a porter fell asleep on those for years. Things didn't change until they pushed to bring in the union. Then things changed substantially for black porters. In 1945, after years of organizing in secret across the country, Porter signed a collective agreement with Canadian Pacific Railway. They got monthly salary increases, one-week paid vacation, and overtime. As air travel took over from trains, this job disappeared. But this movement changed organized labor in Canada. Because it was black people, it was black porters who built CPR. CPR's wealth was built on, uh, on um, mass public transportation. And the porters, the black Americans, the black Canadian, and if there were Africans and Haitians here, they are the foundation to that wealth that was, and they have never been recognized, which I think is, is disgusting. It was the polite attitude that men who were being humiliated, and yet these men were still able to go to a job for three, four, seven days and be polite and be hygienic and be accommodating. I've always enjoyed talking to older people because to me, they're the best source of history because they don't clean it up. They don't glamorize it. They tell you the cold, honest truth. And they're telling you it from living it. My grandmother had to say, she says, you live life, you don't let life live you. What I think that meant was, you may find yourself in circumstances that are beyond your control, but you can control what you will do. No one is going to give you respect. You have to demand it. This is a part of Canadian history that's often overlooked. But a new CBC show called The Porter might change that. It's set in 1920s Montreal and follows the story of train porters and other people in the Black community of St. Antoine. Today, we're talking to show creators Arnold Pinnock and Marsha Green about the story behind The Porter and why it resonates now. This is The Decibel. Marsha and Arnold, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Arnold, what would you like people to get out of a dramatization of this uh, as opposed to, you know, something watching a documentary? Because there is something very gripping about watching a, a drama like this, right? Like you're, you're caught up in the excitement and, and you know, the, the dramatization, as it were, of, of what's going on. So why that decision for, for you? What, what's the significance of that? 
Well, first off, I want to say thank you. <laughs> no, we've done our job. That is great. For me, what I found so amazing about, you know, uh, uh, life imitating art or art imitating life is that there were such an abundant amount of stories that, you know, Marsh and I would always go stuff like, I know, wait till they find out this part is really true, <laughs> you know, mm. because it was we were reading it or understanding it, you know, um, with the help of reading books like Stanley Grizzles or Sage Matthews in the North of Color Line and, and finding out these things that really, really happened. And just to know that they had these personalities and now we can bring these to life in a dramatized show. I, I think to me, it just really excited me because it is a, a hidden treasure. I want to ask you about the experience of of making the show now, because it sounds like this was quite a project for quite a length of time. Um, but Marsha, let's start with you. How was how this different than, I guess, other projects that you've worked on? You know, often you work on shows and there's only, you know, one black character. So there's only so much of your own story or history that you can infuse in one character. Whereas in this show, as we started to create it, well, here we have a cast of people. Some of them are brash, some of them are shy, you know, some of them are bold and some of them are more careful. And so you start to like kind of dig into your own stories and your own history and and all of these different things were coming out. You know, I often think sometimes, you know, I go back to the uh, the Halifax explosion. We've done movies and books and stuff like that. And a terrible thing that happened in Halifax. But I always wanted to know, well, what happened in Africa? How did those people, how did they deal with that explosion? And I may never know uh, because there's nothing documented about it, to my knowledge. And I think that's what we've done. We've turned the camera on those people and now we can see their perspective. I was reading something, I think it was in the Globe piece about about the show, just because you're, you're both kind of talking about, in a sense, like a, a little bit more freedom, it sounds like, on set and in the making of this. And there was an actor who was, who was talking about uh, the experience on set and, and saying that there were these kind of spontaneous moments that were really exciting on set. Do you, any kind of moments from like that, I guess, that, that really stand out in your mind from, from the making of this show? So, yeah, so we were shooting a scene from episode three in the church. And we shot the scene as scripted. And then Arnold went up to our director, R.T. Thorne, and asked, I believe he, you said, like, can we just play for a little bit? Is that right? And then take it away, Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> what happened next? So um, the actor who plays the pastor in I show, who was a church-going man, started really preaching. And... He just, it was like, well, let's be sure. It was as if the spirit touched him and got in him and he started preaching. And what's so beautiful about that is when you preach to the congregation, there's a thing called, you know, echoing it, echoing back. And something swept through the church where people started standing up and, and, and echoing back to the pastor and it was back and forth and you could feel the energy and people started moving and, and, and dancing in the aisles and, and praising God and the, 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 it was just such an unbelievable feeling. But the core of it was people were feeling the freedom to be themselves. They weren't being put into a box and told, 
act this way because this is what we believe is respectable or within the parameter of society seeing they were being themselves. This is what they do every Sunday or every Saturday, depending if they're seven-day Adventists or whatever it may be, but they were being themselves. People talk a lot about kind of the the importance of having a Black creative team. And of course, it, it is very important. But for me, that was kind of the, the magic of it. Like, I don't think that could have happened had it not been like this environment, this team, this story, you know, like when else would you ever get all of that together? So that was it for me, the first time I really understood the power of us being at the helm. In, in, in a way, because it's like, you know, yeah, Arnold can go to RT and say, let's just let them play and like pass the baton to the actor and, and everybody can kind of take this moment to just be in the joy of this very special thing that we were creating together. What were some of the, the tougher moments that, that happened on, on set there? Uh, I guess I'll say two things. Uh, there is a scene in episode four that was very challenging when I wrote it. I felt a lot of emotions and we we knew that going in that we were going to have these moments that would be challenging. So we really made sure that we had support on set. And uh, so we had a, a therapist, Heather O'Neill, who would come to set on days where we knew we would have scenes that would be difficult to film. And then we also had Dr. Christopher Taylor um, yeah. who would do these bi-weekly sessions where anybody could come, actors, writers, producers, crew, and just talk about the show, about race, about history, whatever they wanted, just to get it out, to get it out. Um, anyways, this is all to say that it, it was a very challenging time. And, and there were there were different days where I know Anne-Marie and I, there were three different occasions where Anne-Marie and I wrote a personal letter so a letter from the showrunners to the actors or to the casting agent to share with the actors because of things we knew they were going to have to endure. One of them was an, a scene that comes at the end of episode five, and people will know exactly uh, what I'm talking about when they see it. Another was actually the um, colorism or shadism story between the light-skinned dancers and the dark-skinned dancers just wanting them to know that that was part of the story we were exploring. And we weren't just hiring light-skinned dancers to be in the front and dark-skinned dancers to be in the back. Like, knowing that would trigger for some people, like, oh, we've been here before. And to explain that was the story. When you're saying all this, I mean, this is this makes it very clear that this is not just history, right? These are things that are, are very front and center even today, the, the these situations and the feelings that arise from them. I guess, Marsha, this show in this context of, of today, so why is a show about Black Porters in 1920s Canada? What kind of resonance does it have in, in, in today's society? Like where we are today, which was kind of like in this time of the pandemic, in this time of a real like racial reckoning again, um, we wanted a show that both confronted our history, acknowledged our history, but also inspired people 
based on the history, like the things we didn't get to know about what our ancestors accomplished and hoping that we were going to share that with the world. And it was going to inspire people to keep on the fights that we knew they would see in the show that happened in the 1920s and were still happening today. I mean, we knew that the audience knows that. And so we were in terms of the pandemic of it all. I mean, for me, this show is aspirational. You know, it's like, of course, we show the hard moments we have to. We're showing their lives. But if anything, our focus is how what they dream about, what they achieved, what how they fought back. As uh, as you both know, we we spoke to a former porter um, who worked on Canada's railway, Mr. Clark. Uh, I want to play a clip of of uh, what what he told us, what he hopes the the show can accomplish. This, this um, endeavor that they've done with the Porter's story, I, I think these young people are to be acknowledged. They should be congratulated. And I do hope that this branches off into a continuous story about different aspects of life in North America, specifically Canada, because there's been a mythology about this is a Black utopia, which it's never been. First of all, I'd just like to thank Mr. Clark for calling us the young people. Really appreciate that, Mr. Clark. (laughs) Um, You know, I was thinking what Mr. Clark said really resonates with me. And it also reminds me of something that you asked earlier about, you know, why fiction instead of a doc. And I was thinking that the great thing about having a television series and having a television series on our public broadcaster here um, that's available to everybody is you... Um, can tell your story and it can reach so many more people. Like we knew like a fiction, like a drama, a one hour primetime drama can reach so many people. Whereas, you know, we, there are people who came before us who made docs about this story, you know, who told their stories, who wrote books and then, but we had to search for them and they don't get this widespread attention. And so by telling this fictionalized version, but drawing upon the history, we get to share it with as many people as we possibly can. And then hopefully, as Mr. Clark was saying, there are more stories. And then maybe someone else goes and makes a doc just about the Black Cross nurses in St. Antoine, you know, or just about bootlegging or or, uh, the the real club Stardust or anything like that. The story of, you know, what that uh, club is is inspired by is a fascinating story of Rufus Rockhead. And and Arnold, your your thoughts on that? Well, first of all... um... Once again, Mr. Clark humbles me uh, because he's living history. And, uh, you know, that's why I always say, you know, this the, the porter to me really is a love letter to those that uh, are still with us and those who don't have a voice anymore. And when he talks about the so-called facade that the Jim Crow-ism did not manifest itself north of the border, that is a facade. And it is a facade that has just been magnified and, and uh, I was just in the States. And, uh, you know, even the mindset in the United States might be that this it doesn't exist here. 
But as the media showcases more and more stuff and, you know, they're watching the truckers uh, thing from the United States and they're having a different perspective of what Canada is about or or actually seeing people uh, marching through Black Lives Matter throughout our country and realizing, wait a minute, there there are people north of the border that look like us. So I think when I hear him talk, it just makes me feel like this is a small little thing that we are doing in a bigger aspect of stuff. And if we can stimulate people into wanting to find out, and I'm not just talking black people, I'm talking about Canadians, because at the end of the day, it's a Canadian story. It's an immigrant story. And I say this constantly. These men and women from south of the border and from these small little countries in the Caribbean, Marsha and I are descendants of people from small little countries, Trinidad and Jamaica in the Caribbean. And they came to this country and they changed policy and weaved themselves within the very fabric of our flag. And I know that sounds like standing on a soapbox and preaching, but really, I'm just opening up a history book and going, well, read for yourself. Um, and we're very proud of that. And, um, you know, the show is, like I said, a small little window into it. Marsha and Arnold, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and, and looking forward to the rest of the series. Thank you yeah. very much. <laughs> thank you. Before we go, we also wanted to let you know about how to stay updated on the situation in Ukraine, since Russia has now launched a full-scale invasion of the country. Globe foreign correspondent Mark McKinnon, who we had on the show on Wednesday, is still reporting from Kyiv. Our correspondents Nathan Vanderclip and Paul Waldy are also in the region, following the flow of people out of Ukraine. You can read their reports at theglobeandmail.com or follow them on Twitter to see live updates. Okay, that's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you next week.